No one likes to think about the possibility that their heart might not work properly or would need some help. Imagine being told you need a heart transplant just to survive. Millions of American adults have heart failure, leading to more than 8% of all heart disease deaths each year. It occurs when the heart doesn't function properly. So what that might mean is that the heart muscle is weak, so it can't pump, or the heart can become very stiff and it causes pressures to elevate in the heart. That's Dr. Barry Clemson, heart failure medical director at the OSF Healthcare Cardiovascular Institute. And I'm Shelley Dankoff, your host for Health Accelerated, brought to you by OSF Healthcare. We're having a real heart-to-heart -heart discussion on today's episode of Health Accelerated, brought to you by OSF Healthcare. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States for men and women across racial and ethnic groups. Coronary artery disease affects more than 20 million adults over the age of 20, and more than 6 million adults have heart failure, which accounts for about 8.5% of all heart disease deaths. Those are just some of the stats to start a conversation with the team from the OSF Healthcare Cardiovascular Institute, which offers a full array of heart care, including transplant services. The Heart Transplant Program at OSF Healthcare St. Francis Medical Center in Peoria is the only one of its kind in central and downstate Illinois. Joining me to discuss heart transplantation and more are Dr. Barry Clemson, Heart Failure Medical Director at the OSF Healthcare Cardiovascular Institute, and Dr. Emmanuel Almaraj, the Heart Transplant Surgical Director at OSF St. Francis Medical Center in Peoria. Thank you both for joining me today. This should be a very interesting conversation. So let's get started with what we mean by heart failure. What is heart failure? So heart failure is not a disease in and of itself, but it's really a, a clinical syndrome. And it occurs when the heart doesn't function properly. So what that might mean is that the heart muscle is weak, so it can't pump, or the heart can become very stiff and it causes pressures to elevate in the heart. For either one of those, what ends up happening is the body, in trying to compensate, retains salt and water, and as the water accumulates in the body, it then gets deposited in tissues. So it can get into the lungs and cause the lungs to be congested, and that causes shortness of breath, usually starting with exertion, but as it progresses, even maybe when you're laying down to sleep or even when you're sitting still. And then the fluid can also accumulate in other organs and cause injuries and problems, and it can accumulate in the legs, so you end up with a lot of swelling around the feet, ankles, and eventually up the legs further and further as the condition deteriorates. So that's why often heart patients, you'll hear they're taking drugs to get rid of water. Is that primarily because they're retaining a lot? Yes. We're using the, the drugs to get rid of the water and the salt that the body's trying to retain. Why are we seeing these increased numbers of heart disease? I mean, I read some pretty scary stats here that, is it our diet? Is it our lifestyle? Why do these numbers keep getting scarily high, if you will? It's both of those. Plus, on top of that, the diseases that lend themselves to developing heart failure, in particular coronary artery disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, all of those things are increasing partly because of dietary habits, obesity, all those things contribute to those diseases. And then on top of that, you have a population that's getting older and older. So that makes it worse. 
And then on top of that, you mentioned that a number of people that have coronary artery disease and then heart attacks, there's many, many more people living long times after their heart attacks as they survive in the technology for treating heart attacks improved over the last two or three decades. So they're living longer, getting older, and so their hearts deteriorate over time because of the injuries from the heart attacks. Does this concern you with the state of health and heart care in the United States these days? From a heart failure perspective, it absolutely does. There's projections, if you go out to 2030, 2040, 2050, that that number could easily double or more. So now we're talking 12, 14, 15, 17 million people with heart failure. So Dr. Almaraj, let's turn to you. Where does the discussion of heart transplantation even come into it? I mean, it seems like it's a little more the norm these days than it might have been once upon a time, but where does that whole thing work into the conversation? So usually transplantation and surgical therapeutics for heart failure start at the time when you actually see the patient for the first time. And the reason for that is when we do risk stratification, say we're suppose I'm going to do a coronary artery bypass, or doing a valve replacement. So what we do is we try to risk stratify where the patient is to do the procedure. And if the patient is going to do well after the surgery or not, that gives you a perspective. Now, right about that time is around the time when you would think about transplants because if the patient is a high risk or if patient needs some kind of a mechanical circulatory support backup or if he has a high chance that he might he or she might end up with a much more prolonged, protracted course after surgery, you cannot plan these things right off the bat because you know you're going to undertake a high-risk surgical procedure. And so at that point, we start thinking about, hey, can we bridge this patient towards, like do the surgery and then bridge him if things don't work out, post-transplant versus uh, mechanical circulatory support? Or should at this stage even abandon the idea of doing a surgical procedure where we have to open the sternum or something open, try to do more minimal invasive like a clip or a valve which can be put through the groin or, or through a catheter or, or even stenting for, in some cases and then bridge straight to transplant. That would be a better option for the patient. And that's when we start. So, so transplantation and LVADs or mechanical circuitry support is right in the mix, right off the bat as the patient walks in. Boy, that must get somebody's attention. When you walk in the door and they're already going, we might have to talk heart transplantation. I can't imagine as a patient, that's that's got to be a tough thing to hear. Not everybody that ends up needing a transplant will have had or needed heart surgery. So there's many patients that are just treated medically with further heart failure. But heart failure is a disease that progresses. And so when we really are talking and thinking transplant, it's because the disease is worse and despite medical treatment, the patients are much, much more symptomatic. They can't do any normal activities. They get short of breath walking 10 or 20 feet. They wow. can't go up the steps in their home. They get admitted to the hospital multiple times because the fluid builds up or because their blood pressure is too low. And then they start to have problems with their kidney function, liver. And then you know this disease has progressed to the point that without transplant or some intervention, they will not survive much longer. They've run out of options. So they've run out of options, and they need a transplant. We wanted to do a little history lesson on the heart transplant program in Peoria. It is a program that traces its origins back to 1987 when OSF St. Francis did the first heart transplant into Doris Thomas. She was 55 at the time. 
She's now 91, and I would guess she has exceeded all expectations and then some. Is that that's impressive and that's amazing? Is it surprising to you that she's still alive? And now you told me she's slowed down a little bit at 91, but you know, every 91 year old I think has slowed down a little bit. Are you surprised by her course and how well she has done? Well, you, I mean, you really have to be because if you look at the average survival after transplant, it's far better today than, than it used to be, but it's probably on the order of 14, 15 years. So she just had her 36 year anniversary. So yeah, it's surprising. And it's also surprising because it was the first one done in central Illinois. So you wouldn't necessarily think your first one's going to live, you know, three and a half decades. So it is surprising, but she's done remarkably well over all of that time with very little complication uh, of any sort. Now, she's got some health problems at, that you would expect at 91, but th- that said, she's it's still pretty, pretty good. And also, we're pretty sure she's now the longest surviving heart transplant recipient that only had one transplant. There's some that have had multiple transplants and have long survivals, but we think she's the longest survivor on one organ in the world. The program that existed then ended in 2006. Over the course of its 19-year run, the program successfully completed 208 successful heart transplants. That is an Impressive number. So let's talk about the transition from that. The program went away. Why was the need to transition out of that program? And then the discussion to bring it back again in 2019. Walk me through that process of how it came back into existence. So I was here for the original program from 93 on. And then I had actually moved back to Pennsylvania where I'm from and was working with the transplant program where I trained. And then I got a call asking would I come back to try to revive this advanced heart failure work. I was a little hesitant because it's a huge commitment. I knew it would take time. The infrastructure for it was gone. So it really had to be built 100% from the ground up. And that's a huge undertaking. And, And it has to be committed to. You can't start it and stop because you change your mind. So... Fast forward, 2015, I come back. I have to re-educate nursing. I have to recruit doctors, Dr. Amaraj, the surgeon, other cardiologists to work in the program. We have to go through all the regulatory approvals, which were many. It took all of that time to put all the pieces in place so that by the end of, of 2019, we were then approved and ready to go and start doing LVAD surgery and transplants. I want to talk about a little bit of the recruiting of Dr. Almaraj, because you're right, you have to have the right people in the room to drive the bus to get this to happen. So Dr. Almaraj, give me that history lesson of how you ended up from all of your various places, and you end up in Peoria, Illinois, to help lead this transplant program. I got a call from the CVI Institute, actually, regarding somebody else, and it was... We were interviewing one of the surgeons from here back in Texas. So I just did my homework just to call back and kind of get a sense of who he was and where he's from. And in the process, I ended up uh, talking to Barry, and I learned about Barry coming back from Pennsylvania and starting the heart failure program. The The personal side of the story is that my family, my wife's family actually is in this area. We come to Bloomington pretty much for every Thanksgiving. So this conversation happened in September, and I said, hey, Thanksgiving's coming. I can swing by and just kind of meet you guys and, you know. And that's how the conversation started. 
And before I knew it, I met Barry, and then Barry gave me a very interesting perspective about his life story, about the program that was present and how well it did. And, uh, you know, after he went to Pennsylvania, he really wanted to come back and leave a legacy in Peoria. When you meet another person with the same vision as you do, because in, in my life, yeah, it's being one thing being a surgeon and, you know, you're doing a job and, you know, you try to see what's best for your patients and try to have the best results. But it's also you want to live a life of significance and you want to give something back. Between Barry and I, our conversations were very passionate conversations about how we want to, the vision of going forward. And I think that kind of pulled me in. So that brings up a good point about this whole, the team concept. No man is an island, if you will, when it comes to heart transplantation. You have to work well together to make this happen. And there has to be a whole team involved in this approach, doesn't there? And that's what we have put in place to make this program successful. Tell me about that. So as you can imagine, trying to have a heart transplant program is very, very complex between the surgery, picking the right patients that will you know, have the best option of doing well, the medical care thereafter, very, very complicated scenario. And so you really have to have expertise in many, many levels across what I would call medicine or healthcare. So we have probably 14 or 15 individuals that are on our team from the, the cardiologists, the surgeons, nursing, the coordinators that help us manage and, and keep track of all the patients, social service, nutrition service, case managers, um, insurance and finance. It's a multitude of people and you have to have all of them in place. I left out pharmacy, they're critical. So it's, it's just requires a village to do this. From a surgeon's perspective, uh, the way I can say is when I did come here to Peoria at OSF, uh, to see even if the center is a good center to start a program. One of the prerequisites for me was the, the center should have something called an ECMO service. What it does is it basically takes the blood out of the patient's body. It uh, supports the heart and the lungs. There are a couple of ways to do it. In 2008, 2009, when the swine flu hit, ECMO became a major forefront in patient management. When that subsided, the tribulation actually led to having a good, well-founded ECMO team. And that ECMO team functions based on a multidisciplinary approach. That means you have the hematologist, you have the nutritionist, you have the, uh, the intensivist, you have the cardiologist, you have the surgeon, everybody involved in these cases as a team. So that already had the platform at OSF St. Francis. So it was, okay, since we had the groundwork, it was one of those things that you could, it's easy to build from here. One of the things that we often hear people, you say, all of this wonderful work, and this is the only one in downstate Illinois, outside the major cities. And people go, Peoria? And they like turn their heads sideways and look at you with a question mark. And we're like, yes, Peoria. So let's talk about, it's not just about the care provided in the facility and the surgery itself, but the support systems that can exist around here. And that's why Peoria and central Illinois is perfect for this type of a center. Yeah, I think it really comes down to being able to provide a service in, in the patient's local area. A lot of farmers in central Illinois, a lot of other blue collar and other types of, you know, industry. Um, but people that live in the footprint of, of OSF don't really want to go to big cities for healthcare. And when you get to things like transplant and other really high profile types of things, 
you might have to spend weeks, months in, a, in an area. And so that becomes a major hardship for the patient because they don't have family with them most of the time. It's a hardship for family because how do you work and stay in Chicago for two months and have no income and so on? So being able to do something in their local area that is high profile like that becomes a win-win for the patients in our region. OSF has become that destination center for both transplants and the ventricular assist device procedures. We haven't really talked about them. So let's talk about, we've talked about transplantation, but let's talk about the VADs and the LVADs. First of all, explain what those are and why those are used and why we're seeing an increase in the use of them. The best way I can say is ECMO. That is a temporary form of circulatory support. A more permanent form of circulatory support where you're not hooked up to any wires, you can actually leave the hospital and go home. That's where the LVAD, L stands for left, VAD stands for ventricular assist device. So what it does is your heart's pumping, all it does is it augments it a little bit more. The best way I can put, give an example is putting a turbo in your car. It's a, it just amps your engine's output. Now, it, it works well uh, in patients who are not, uh, not transplant candidates. Now, not transplant candidate, it's a very broad statement because it could be multifactorial. For example, it could be age-related, which is not something that for us is more of a functional thing, so we do have extended criteria for all that. It could be smoking or, uh, or some form of an addiction. Uh, it could be psychiatric, it could be social support, it could be financial, and sometimes it might be just related to organ functions, like, you know, to tune the patient up and make sure the organs, like, say, renal failure and things like that. And once, as Barry was pointing out, was once he fixes the heart failure component or the medical component of it, we can optimize the kidney function and bring him to that point. So during those transition times of preparing a patient for a transplant, who could be potentially be a transplant candidate, we have to come up with a system where, okay, we cannot keep the patient in the hospital with a temporary device supporting him permanently because it's a temporary device. You do have complications from the device itself. I mean, you could have clots going to the brain or the other organs, and then it may not end well. So for that reason, having a more permanent device. Now, if it's just the, so the heart, the way I look at the heart and the way Barry looks at the heart we don't look at the heart as one organ. We look at it as actually two organs. There's the right heart and the left heart. If the right heart is working well and the left heart is the one which has the issues where this dilated, which is most common, it's, it's most commonly the left heart. And that's why the LVADs were designed to support only the left heart. Now we do use it sometimes off-label to support the right heart, but primarily it's driven to support the left heart. LVADs were used for two different purposes. One was for a destination therapy these were determined patients who are probably never going to become transplant candidates because of, say, maybe they're 65 years of age or close to 70 at the time of the heart failure. So we put in the LVAD and enjoy the last golden years, and I have had some of the most satisfied patients in my career. The second group is the bridge for transplant. So bridge for transplant means, as I explained earlier, like, somebody who can be potentially a transplant candidate that we kind of bridge that gap, give them a year or so or two years till all their medical conditions settle down or their social conditions. Because once it's an LVAD, they can get back to work. So people are out and about with this LVAD. So that makes them more into potential candidates into transplants. So while they're waiting for a heart and things like that, the bridge of transplants was going well. I have a true appreciation for 
the population in general because people do understand the importance of being a donor. So that has been a lot of education from the you know the UNOS, which is the organ donation network, and of course in driver's license and DMVs and people are being asked, and so it has caught on. Who is a good candidate for transplantation, or is there no one set of circumstances? I mean, how do we determine who's going to get what? Or again, is it a case by case basis? It's clearly case by case for sure, because everybody comes with different illnesses, background history, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think the simplest way to put it is fairly healthy other than the heart, age probably less than 70 these days, although I've seen a few patients elsewhere, maybe 71 too. And then if they do have other illnesses, they have to be stable. So diabetes has to be controlled. Kidney disease can't be too bad, liver likewise. Uh, Lung disease, emphysema, COPD can't be too bad because these are people who have to be able to recover and live 20 or 30 years maybe. So they can't have too much other really complicated and severe health health illnesses otherwise. They can't have cancer unless it's remote because when we try to protect the heart from rejection – those drugs can actually cause cancer in some cases. And certainly if somebody has cancer and is being treated, you can't do that. You can't suppress their immune system. So I think in a nutshell, that's kind of what we look at. They can't smoke because smoking is bad after a transplant. Too much alcohol, same. Drugs, same. So they have to have a pretty good lifestyle and behavior. And they have to be able to deal with the emotion of a transplant. So someone with really bad mental health problems might not be a good person for this because they might not handle this, the difficulties of waiting and then living with transplant later. So let's talk about the first patient again. We talked about Doris Thomas, who's 36 years in after the first time go around on the program. So let's talk about the young man who benefited. He was younger. I was surprised that first patient. I felt like he was younger. He actually came in at the beginning of COVID. So we thought for sure he had COVID because he was very, very, very sick. And we tested him many times, so that wasn't part of the equation. But he came in very, very ill. I think he was 22 at the time. He required many of the devices that Dr. Amaras talked about to support him to work on again his lungs clear, his kidneys, liver, all that stuff. So once he stabilized, we actually did put him on an LVAD because we really weren't sure what was going to happen to his heart. So he did get an LVAD, and he went home. And then over the next 6 or 12 months, whatever the time frame was, then he stabilized real well at first but then deteriorated, and mainly because the right side of the heart started to fail. And he ended up coming back in the hospital pretty ill again, required support, and then we listed him for transplant. And then ultimately he got his transplant. He has done absolutely amazing. He was a runner and, and very physically active. I, I know within six months of his transplant, he did a five-mile run. So only six months out. Yeah. And and he's he works full-time. He's very vigorous. He's just living life to the fullest. It has changed his life. Oh, I mean, for sure. Absolutely. Saved his life. Saved his life. Yeah, absolutely. Do cases like that, I will ask both of you, because you're involved in different components of it. Did that kind of say to you, this is the reason we— 
brought this, we reinvigorated this program and restarted. I mean, there's lots of reasons. I get it. But when you have that kind Always. of a case, you just go, wow. These are the kind of cases that keep yeah. you going, especially on the harder times, even in the middle of COVID. I mean, these kind of cases are inspirational, honestly, and it also humbles you. It, it humbles you as a person just to see the determination and the, hearing his story just inspires you. Everyone's as exciting as the first one I ever was involved in, and that was way in the 80s. I tell my patients the same thing. I said each one's transplant journey is very different. Uh, it's a fascinating story whichever way you look at it because you get the opportunity to carry on someone else's legacy. Uh, or like even if you, you know, say in my life, say suppose in my life um, I wanted to do something significant and for some reason I, you know, didn't get to do it. And my heart's given to someone else and, uh, you know, that person carries on and, and lives a full life, gives me more satisfaction. Yeah, so the recipients can really create their own life legacy, whatever that is, whatever they wanted to do. I remember some patients way back when all they wanted is to be alive to see grandchildren. Yeah. And I remember one guy in particular from Pennsylvania, I think he ended up with like 25 grandkids. So he watched them grow up. Some of them got married. That was his legacy. But let me show you the other end of the spectrum, especially in LVADs. I remember this patient in Texas, actually, before I came here. He was about 76 years old, but he was a very active gentleman. He actually worked on a farm, and he he was, you know, despite his heart failure, he was not somebody who would sit down. He got sick with heart failure, and, he, you know, he had a coronary disease. So obviously he was 76 years old. At that point, I spoke to him about uh, LVADs, and initially I was hesitant to it. But eventually what happened was uh, we did the LVAD. It went well, and... Uh, he lived for two years more. And then, of course, uh, sadly, he had a stroke and eventually. But after everything ended, his wife got in touch with me again um, about a two or three months later. And she told me these words, which I'll never forget. He said, I know he was 76 years old, but you gave me two more years just to be with the man I love. I can totally see that. And yeah, yeah. So the answer to your question is a resounding yes. As we look to the future for this heart transplant program through OSF Healthcare, the Cardiovascular Institute, and OSF St. Francis Medical Center in Peoria, put your crystal ball in front of you and look ahead. Is it just continue to grow, get bigger, better, innovative? There's so much innovation we talk about around here. The future is bright for these procedures and for the healthcare for these patients who need it? I think so. From normal transplant, whether it be the heart or kidney or another organ, donations are up in the last three, four years, where for 20 years they were totally flat. But it's really going to be innovation that changes the game because no matter what we have for donation, it's never going to be enough organs for all the people who might need a transplant. So everybody remembers um, a few months ago, they genetically engineered a pig heart and put it in a patient, and he lived a couple of months after that and did pretty well, and then there was some unforeseen complication. I've been told that they're going to continue to do that and are looking to recruit patients from around the country to grow the experience. 
to figure out is the genetic engineering good enough or do we need to do better there? There's been researchers around the country working on the ability to actually grow a heart. So in short order, they take a heart, they digest off all the muscle. It leaves the skeleton, if you will, of the heart inside. They take stem cells, implant it on the skeleton, and they can grow hearts. Nowhere near ready for prime time, but it will be. It will come. There's no question with the technology that that will happen. So now if you can build a heart, maybe even with some patient's own stem cells, so you get a skeleton from a heart of maybe an animal or something that's a similar size to the human heart, you take it all away. So now you just have the inside skeleton. You implant the stem cells maybe from the same patient, their own, and you build them a new heart that's their heart. People starting in transplant today in their 30s, they're, they're going to see this stuff. It's going to come. The whole movement towards advancements in technologies actually started off from the talk that Jeff Kennedy gave in uh, the University of Rice uh, in Texas when he talked about the moon, uh, going to the moon. That started the entire movement towards building of technology. Within the next decade, the total artificial heart happened, and that was put in, the first one was put in Texas. Then, of course, they tried the transplants back in the 70s and the 80s. Then the transplant declined because of immunosuppression drugs. Now, after cyclosporin came out in the 1980s, uh, the transplantation in all organs picked up right off the bat. So progress and advancements in different medications and uh, for better outcome and also to increase the longevity of a heart after it's transplanted. Now we're inching slowly towards 17 and a half to 18 years. Now, that is advancements in medications. Now, when it comes to technology as in mechanical stuff, we have nanotechnology that actually can make things even smaller. So you have nanobots which can actually build smaller devices. So it is just astounding at the pace we are going from the moon talk, going to the moon back in the 60s, all the way down to now, where now we are transitioning from fossil fuel going towards electric and this and that. So there's a lot of technology that's coming to support that. Thank you for sharing all the work that we're doing through the OSF Cardiovascular Institute and through the Heart Transplant Program at OSF St. Francis Medical Center in Peoria. Dr. Emmanuel Almaraj, our surgeon, and Dr. Barry Clemson, head of the Heart Failure Program. It's been a very enjoyable and educational conversation. Thanks for being with us today. Shelly, thanks for having us. It's great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Health Accelerated, brought to you by OSF Healthcare. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can also find links to any of our episodes on the OSF Newsroom at newsroom.osfhealthcare.org.